Welcome back, or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and before we get started, I wanted to make an announcement. I have decided to create a Patreon for this media operation. If you've gotten any value from this show over the past nine months, please consider making a monthly donation. Why am I doing this, you might be asking? Because I want to do more. I want to do more research for each episode. I want to publish more interviews. I want to do investigative journalism type work, documentary style work. I want to travel to races to do more in-depth race coverage. In short, I want to devote my full attention to content creation on behalf of this sport. But I'm at my capacity. The current bottleneck is my time. I have a nine to five job and I fit this podcast and weekly newsletter into the early mornings and late nights of each day as well as the weekends. It's certainly a passion project, a labor of love, and frankly, I will keep doing it, even if I can't make it my life's work. But I do hope it becomes more. I want it to be the main thing. But I can't do that without the help of this audience, people like you. So if you feel compelled to make a contribution, go to patreon.com backslash run single track. And no worries if you can't or don't want to. I promise this content will always be free and open. Either way, I appreciate your consideration, and above all else, you are listening to each episode. With that, let's move on to the show. In this episode, we meet with Andrew Drummond, a skier, a runner, retail store owner, and overall great ambassador for the White Mountains based in Jackson, New Hampshire. We cover a lot of ground. We talk about his experience pacing Scott Jurek during the final stretch of his Appalachian Trail FKT back in 2015. We talk about being a content creator in the sport. We have a wide-ranging conversation about the Northeast trail running scene, and we also dive deep into his experience running a ski and run specialty store. Let's get started. All right, Andrew Drummond, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Hey, Finn. Thanks for having me. I think the place I want to start is around your history on the Appalachian Trail. I just finished reading the book North by Scott Jurek. It details his 2015 FKT attempt, or he got the FKT on the AT, and you played a, a pivotal role in one of the most dire points of his journey. So maybe we start there. Can you talk about that experience? Sure, yeah. That was um, that summer was really the, the year I got into trail running, I think. I really dove in full force, and it just happened to be the year that Scott was doing his AT attempt, and it was it was pretty crazy because I mean, I, I've been following the sport since I would say 2012, you know, I I read born to run. I learned about Leadville. I was just, um, really getting into it, thinking about how fun it would be to, to do an ultra. And that summer I'd, I'd already signed up, I think for the Vermont 50. So I was already into training and thinking about, um, how to prepare for that race. But anyway, Scott's um, speed effort, I was following from afar and I just, I didn't want anything to do with it. I didn't want to be part of a circus. I just sort of wanted to let him do his own thing, even when he was coming through the white mountains. And, but it was like, he, he must've been in, in Vermont when I got a a phone call from Timmy O'Neill, who was helping to crew him. And, and all of a sudden it was like one of those drop everything moments. Uh, if someone asks you to come crew for Scott Jurek, you, you, uh, (laughs) quit what you're doing and I just happened to not be doing much to go meet up with him for the pretty much the 100 miles that goes through the White Mountains so 
but initially it was just like come meet at Musalak and we'll go from there see how it goes and um, however I could help I was going to help but I really didn't know what to expect I didn't have experience crewing and um, certainly didn't know how fast he was going to be moving I mean that's always a concern I think like it's easy to get intimidated by yeah um, other runners that you know are can be fast but in hindsight it was like there was so much I learned that I could have done better but um, yeah that was a that was a huge moment for me he paints a picture in the book of that section yeah just being very pivotal but also he's he's losing a lot of time he's slowing down uh he appears malnourished in a lot of photos in the book um it, it looks like he has to use basically every single hour of the day to to get his uh required mileage done you were there in the moment was it everything it was cracked up to be in the book like where you was yeah what was it like it, it was pretty dramatic. I think uh, he was not the person that you read about. He was not the person you see in interviews. He was a, a bit of a shell of himself, but also just like stripped down and like pure. I, I think it's that's a beauty of the trail is that it really cuts the bullshit out. And, and Scott was focused on um, what he was doing, the task at hand. He was tired. He was... Um, there were moments where he wasn't like always chipper and nice and that's kind of it's good to see that he's human but he was also really courteous to others on the trail and really genuinely interested in other through hikers and what they were up to where they were going their trail names all sorts of stuff um mm. so he was still like really interactive on the trail and that was that was cool to see and um but he yeah, the, the White Mountains were like hitting a wall. He'd just gone through a really hard section of Vermont that didn't really set him up well. It was, you know, notoriously muddy and slow. And and all of a sudden you have this stretch of like, yeah, 100 miles with 30,000 plus vertical and some of the most technical terrain that you'll hit on the whole Appalachian Trail. And it's towards the end and he had already over, you know, had some injuries and stuff slowing him down. So the the deadline and, try, and trying to do the, the rough math, it was it wasn't looking great. Like he had to really move. And I think his expectations and his crew's expectations were much higher than they should have been in, in Heinz, you know, you read the story and it's like what he was trying to cover. He, you know, the mileage in days, like trying to keep up this pace of 40 something miles just isn't, isn't realistic when you're that worked. Um, so anyway, yeah, like the, what he wrote in the book was, was pretty, pretty accurate. Yeah. Can you talk about, because it just seems like it was such a formative experience for you as well. Can you talk about where you were at in life prior to that opportunity and then the impact that it had on you as a result and what you did as a result? Yeah, I don't know if what track I was on, but I think like there is like this pre Scott Jerick time in my life and the post Scott Jerick and, and beforehand I, that this, the preceding summer, I just moved back to New England from San Diego. I'd done about 10 years living out there in Baja and doing a lot of surfing, refocusing my life and like the sports that interest you. And at that point, surfing was my thing. I'd grown up ski racing and ski, and, and ski patrolling. And that was um, part of my identity. And, and I, it just got stale. And once I moved to San Diego and um, really went all in on surfing. I, everywhere I traveled, my vacations were really centered around surfing. I was in Hawaii for a summer. I got to travel to India, Sri Lanka, South America, Peru, um, really anywhere there's ocean, there's surf. And But when I moved back to the mountains of New England and, and specifically the White Mountains, um, 
my focus changed and I was really excited to be back here where I grew up and, and rediscover the White Mountains and and also just trail running and outdoor sports. And when I moved back here, I did everything. I, I did snowshoe running. This is like winter. I was in Nordic Nordic leagues, Alpine race leagues, and got into some road racing. But ultimately, um, that yeah, that summer of 2014 when I moved back, I, I wasn't really signed up for anything. And mm. I signed up for a half marathon. Um, this all started with my partner, Hillary. She was she was doing a, this duathlon called the Wild Man. And it's a 10K run and then a bike, about a 20-mile bike up to Pinkham Notch to Wildcat Ski Area. And then you run up the mountain. And I was up at an aid station to cheer on. And all of a sudden, um, Chris Freeman, a, a Nordic Olympian, comes flying up. And I'm like running up, like cheering him on and he's flying. Like I could barely keep up. But, um, after that event and Hillary, Hillary like might've won or did, did really well. And I was like, why am I not doing this? I mean, I'm, I'm competitive. I'm, I'm athletic. I feel like I could have fun doing some of these events. And, and that just kind of lit the match that led me down the path of, you know, all right, so I'm going to do a half marathon. How do I train for that? Maybe I'll do a 5K and it, I'll find a 10K, but that 10K will be part of an Olympic distance triathlon and I'll meet friends through all these sports and they'll pull me into winter activities and there's different run groups here in, in New Hampshire and they host events and just this rabbit hole where it wasn't all in on skiing. I think that's what I do the most of now and more mountain trail running, but it was try a little bit of everything and then come the the next year that 2015 was like, okay, mm. I've sort of built up this base and the ultra stuff seems more, more interesting. And that's, that's where I want to go. So, you know, Scott Jarrett came and he just showed me that like, there's so much, um, there's so much to be gained from pushing yourself from doing these big projects where things might not always go as planned. You can fail, but like you, you put it out there, you, you make these big plans. And then, um, you know, when Scott did the AT, it was like, he left the white mountains and it was so fun. And I got so lost in the moment for like these three days. So I did the first day with him and, and I said, all right, let's keep going. We linked up with another friend and, and that was like Tristan Williams. And he used mm -hmm. to work in the, you know, he worked in the hut construction crew. And, and so I followed him and Scott. And then the last, you know, we stayed up at mitzvah hut. And then the next day, um, the last day we met up with another friend, Gabe Flanders, and, and we helped Scott get through that last section of the Wildcat Cartamariah range. And we slept like a little bit in the imp shelter. It was crazy. It was just like nonstop, um, you know, getting a few, a few hours of sleep here and there. And it was really like my first experience doing anything like that. Yeah. And after that happened and he left and went um, to the next section in Maine, I was just like really defeated. I was like, <laughs> and I was kind of sad. I, I equate it to like being at, college and everyone leaves and you're just stuck there you know everyone goes to summer break and you're you're just left there wondering what you're going to do with yourself and and so i went up um hillary and i went up to meet scott in baxter state park it just lined up to be on a weekend and um we reconnected and super cool like went in where a ball a ball bridge yeah someone like looked like they were looking for scott as well and it was um his um it was one of like topher gaylord's buddy uh, Levi Miller, who's yeah. who's fr who's from Maine, I didn't know him, and so Levi and I went in to find Scott. We ran in like seven and a half miles into the hundred mile wilderness from Abel Bridge, 
and then found him. He didn't even recognize me. He was so out, so gone um, until like, and Chris, he was with Chrissy Mel and I don't know if he was with Topher or someone else at that point, but found him running back and halfway back to Abel Bridge. He's like, he put it together who I was. And it was crazy. It was like, we just had a moment. I was like, wow. You know, I didn't want to say anything. Didn't want to disrupt. I was just kind of like a fly on the wall. And at that point, um, he's, there was a couple other locals from Maine that showed up and yeah, the rest of the trail was with, with them all the way up to the top of Katahdin. But, uh, it was so, so gratifying to be part of that project, to watch him hit his goal. And then it just made me really think about my life and what am I doing and how can I set myself up to have some sort of adventure like he had, um, and this sort of dovetails into the, the white mountain d'artissima, yeah. which was a, a project that like, it was almost instantly I, I sought after when Scott wrapped up, I was thinking like what, you know, what really excites me and motivates me. And it's like the 48, 4,000 footers here and peak bagging is such a huge thing in the white mountains. And some people have been doing it all in one push, pretty much self-supported or unsupported, um, traveling from peak to peak on foot and really getting creative with trail choices and how, how to do it efficiently. And, I was like, oh, that's perfect. So I, I just started scheming. So I had that Vermont 50 race in, in September, but the next summer I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. So I gave myself like this year window to train and get, a, you know, do a lot of other events, but focus on trail running and just hiking in the White Mountains. What's involved in the Deeratisma? Can you spell that out for us and like the setting for it and then how you prepare? Because that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was... Um, sort of this really neat project that I, I tried to drum up a lot of attention tried to get some sponsors on involved just to like share it and make people more aware that, Hey, there's this really fun way to fast pack the, you know, the 48 and there's, there's some history behind it. Like, um, I forget the year that I, I should look this stuff. I have this stuff on, on a file here, but <laughs> it had been done before. Like, I forget how long ago, and, you know, the style it had been done would have been like 19 days. This this husband and wife couple been getting a ride from like where they started off and like going home and sleeping and then coming back to, and picking up sort of section hiking it. And then I think I heard it heard about Arlette Lawn when she did it. And she had been, I don't know, 10 days or something somewhere in that wheelhouse. And and then there was like a, a record of like eight days, but I wasn't really interested in a fastest known time or record. I just wanted to do it in my style, which whatever way that was and um, see what that meant. And that could be like, can I do it in a week? Can I, you know, I'm just going to travel fast and light. And it's about 240 miles, 240 miles, maybe 80,000 feet. And in all this, you know, white mountain terrain, which is really slow and um, using mostly trail. Like there's a couple off trail sections, but um, yeah, it's like, it's like, it's going to take seven days. It's like, what do you bring for a seven day trip for, you know, someone that has no experience doing, um, fast packing. And then also just like, what do you need for nutrition and supplies? And so that part was really fun is like the logistics of it. And, um, I just trying to find a, a good weather window, you know, that's going to treat you well, whether that's like the heat, humidity, rain, um, daylight, there's lots of factors to think about. And then your fitness, like, are you fit? Are you prepared for it? So this really neat project where it, it's like a, a microcosm for the AT where I didn't have 40 something days, 50 days to go do a project like that. But what could I do in my backyard and, and how 
could I give myself the opportunity to succeed at something or fail? Um, I looked at it like, yeah, I'm going to get this done, but you know, anything can happen. And then how can I share it? And so being social, inviting people to come out with me and, and taking photos and having sort of this real time storytelling as it unfolds was like such a fun, um, it, it appealed to me like this is going to be like a, a blast. It'll be hard, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, just to close the book on the Scott Jerk part of this conversation, um, I was actually thinking about this before the interview, and it's interesting that a lot of us, myself included at times, we tend to think of running as this very selfish activity. We're going into our own inner worlds, but this example of you meeting Scott out on the trail and running the whites with him and then reconvening at Katahdin and then just like reevaluating parts of your life and doing the Diratissima and just going all in with like the running story, which we'll talk about later. It's so cool. And it just shows that um, running can be this incredible platform to serve other people. It may not be in a direct way like in other professions, but I just find that so cool. And I wonder how many other folks are out there like yourself who got impacted by that, uh, by that FKT he did back in 2015. And it's just cool to think about. So yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's life changing. I, I think like I go to, I was reading Eat and Run or one of his books. I remember I was at the surf break down like Scorpion Bay down in Baja reading one of his, reading his book. And then next thing you know, just like teleport me. I'm on the trail with him. It was, it's pretty, pretty surreal. And, you know, after the fact, like Scott is the, he's like, you know, wishes me a happy birthday on my birthdays. He, he like, took the time to like you know text me or it's just crazy like you think like one of these guys um that you just read about and seems untouchable is just so genuine and um yeah i was out in boulder went out to dinner with him and his family and it's uh he's the real deal like you meet someone like that it's impossible not to be changed and then Mm. yeah so you have these like this trickle trickle down effect where it's like it pushed me made me think about my life a little differently and um it's infectious like when someone has success like that it's uh it's hard not to want a little bit of that and i think that um i hopefully you know when i went out and did the the diatism and got into that like that people watched and people learned and they're like oh this is something that i could do or you know what's uh you know how can i hike the 48 and like even if it's just like now i give presentations and have Mm. material to share and what I learned and, and pass that along. But it, it, yeah, it totally is this, this, um, butterfly effect where like, I don't know where my life would be, but it was like, yeah, I met Timmy O'Neill and like, he's sharing a lot of information with me and like, you know, here's some companies, here's some contacts and who you work mm-hmm. with. And I don't know, it's the, the whole thing was pretty magical. Well, on that topic, you've done an awesome job in the last five to six years of being an ambassador for the whites and particularly in my opinion, documenting your athletic career and all of your adventures in the White Mountains through YouTube and Instagram and other forms of social media. And, um, you know, content creation, it's growing in our sport, but there's still only a handful of people that I think are quote unquote household names in our sport. And I I think you're one of them. So how'd you get into it? Like, where does that skill set, that like marketing mind come from and that desire to show the world what you're doing? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a huge, um, compliment. And I have to like acknowledge all of the, the badasses that come, came before me and like everyone from, you know, Andrew Thompson, who has like, he had the AT speed record. He's got the 48. Actually, he, I met him on the trail with Scott Jurek. 
had no clue who he was thought he was just some frat guy and he's like talking to me talking about he's like i asked him if he'd done a hundred miler before he's like yeah i did barclays and i was like cool and that was that and i didn't know anything about it and um yeah like sue johnston came by and she's a legend and like all these other people like ben nephews um ryan welts adam will adam wilcox christina uh full sick there was just like Kevin Tilton, there's like a crew mm. of people that were doing amazing stuff in the White Mountains. Um, and I came into it with like a little different spin where I'm like, yeah, I want to do that stuff too, but I'd love to like really share it and document it because um, there's that chip on your shoulder when your mountains aren't getting the recognition that they should get. And it's not that I want things to get overcrowded and pop- like popularized, but there is like something one part ego one part like you really genuinely care about the protection of your your homeland and you want to share that so Mm. um yeah to to put it concise like what i was like really trying to do was one was like what path do i have like in life like can i do something creative can i take photos and videos and and start doing some projects some projects so to speak where i'm like getting funding from companies or something you know i didn't know i was just kind of just a shot in the dark trying to see what what career path i was going to do I, I moved back to new hampshire with nothing lined up i just had some money and and that was it i had a dog puppy and i was like i'm just gonna go out and spend a lot of time in the mountains and maybe something will come with it maybe not but it's like i gotta just go out and try i enjoy doing it and so that's how i felt i should be spending my time but this, you know along with that it's like you go into shops and there's like you know, perfect example is like the Patagonia shop in Freeport, Maine had this beautiful photo of um, Loch Blanc and Chamonix. And it's like, mm. you've got Baxter State Park in your backyard. Why don't you have photos from from there, like the knife edge or something really relatable? Because that's a big thing about like getting people out in into the mountains and, and showing what's accessible, what's in their backyard. You don't need a plane ticket. You don't need a guide. You just, it's right here. Um, yeah. And that's, that's one thing that like I really took away from um just being around being around here being in the northeast is that all these brands have their headquarters a lot of brands are headquartered here but a lot of brands are headquartered out west and just trying to regionalize things and like you have this market that's thirsty for the outdoors but maybe they just need a little motivation to access it or something you know so whether that's just planting that seed to show them that it's right here they can have it I think of like all the work, for example, that Billy Yang has done on the storytelling front with a lot of West Coast athletes. And you mentioned people like Ben Nephew and Andrew Thompson and Tristan and Christina. It'd be cool to have like a similar content series doing a lot of storytelling around what those folks have done in the whites and in the greens and up in Maine. Because like Ben Nephew, for example, he set a lot of the precedents for a lot of FKTs, as you know, in New Hampshire. And there's a lot of stories that I think are left to be told there. And I don't know if that's something that interests you, but it just came to mind. No, I, I think like I, I'm so raw and unpolished in like the document documentary, like uh, storytelling world. I just, I'm so quick to, all right, let's go get some stack, some clips, edit it quick, move on. Like what's, what's next? Like it takes a lot of patience. The stuff that like Billy Yang does is so well done. And that's like, it's in hindsight, I sometimes wish I had that patience to do things like that. But yeah, you're right. Like there's, um, there's always a new 
a new generation of um of runners and and people doing like big things in the northeast and like i look at stuff right now and it's like you know you got jack jack kensel coming out next this next week to um yeah give a stab at the white mountain 100 trying to do that in under 24 hours which is insane and setting fkts in the hut traverse and the and the the prezi traverse and like the, the the battle for the prezi traverse between you know him you got jordan ben thompson uh, ben thompson you know and and those other all the new yorkers that have been coming up you know ryan like ryan atkins, atkins and yeah. uh yeah i don't know it's um there's lots of storylines interesting things happening i mean i remember when the pemi traverse just seemed like it just would trade hands every few times every summer you know that was like i know like when adam wilcox was doing it a bunch and ben nephews and um uh who am i missing ben thompson got in there and then patrick karen and then ben thompson took it back and when ben thompson took it back from patrick karen i was like wow because um ben you know patrick karen was like one of the first to go under six hours and it's just like these little barriers that keep getting broken and then like jordan goes out on a training run a scouting run and is feeling good and ultimately gets it and then that same i don't know like not long after before that jack had right after that jack had gone out doing something similar and was you know this new caliber of athletes coming out mountain runners that are so focused um on the speed end of things that it's like it's exciting like this is like gonna attract um a a deeper pool of talent to come out uh and there's lots of stories to be told and there's so much different different things happening on the scale you know when i was talking about peak bagging you've got Mm. um like jason bupre i don't know how to say jason's last name but him and his his partner leah are out doing like you know jason's done a, a double grid so he's gridded out the 48 4,000 peaks he's done so that's you know each peak in each month on the calendar year um a couple times and it's just wiping the slate clean because he's done he's not contributing to his second grid with anything he did during that time window for his first grid it's it's hard to explain like the determination it takes to do stuff like that but um there's yeah there's the full spectrum I think I used to ask the wrong question a lot on this podcast, which was, you know, why are all of the elite athletes in our sport concentrated in the mountain West in the West coast? And the more I've talked with folks like you who are based in the East coast and the Northeast, I realize that that's not the case at all. It just tends to be the case that a lot of the best athletes are more or less opting out of the traditional event experience. And they're more into the FKT scene folks like Jack Kensel, who are going for the white mountains hundred next week. And, I don't think Ben Thompson does a lot either outside of the FKT scene and Jordan's like a biker, I think outside of it. So, um, I guess what I'm trying to drive to is why do you think, uh, like our sport is so West centric when it comes to like the way the media talks about it and even the way brands promote the sport. Like you mentioned at LL Bean, there's photos of like, you know, the four pass loop in Aspen and, you know, Chamonix when like there's Mount Katahdin right there outside their door. Well, there's no denying like the raw talent that's out West because it's so, it's so easy to just move somewhere where the, the running is like 12 season, you know, 12 month season running like of, uh, good training grounds at altitude. And, um, that's great. Like I, I think it's really similar to how skiing is, is is that like, you're going to get an extended ski season, better quality skiing 
out west, but it's not to say you can't get it here. Uh, and with the talent, like we get a lot of talent from, I'd say, the Nordic scene. That's where like um, Jordan came from. That's where like some of the other female runners definitely come from. But Nordics, the Nordic background. Um, I went up and did a Pemi loop with Noah Hoffman, who is like a U.S. Olympian, Nordic skier, and man, like he, we both had heart rate monitors on, and I was like twenty beats higher than him. Like <laughs> he was just cruising, and and no, it's just they have come from like such a, a proven training system, like of just lots of running, lots of volume, periodized, lots of um, biking, lots mm. of Nordic Nordic. Uh, rollerblading and other crazy things like takes a lot of discipline what they're doing but they they're building the, these monster bases that allow them to go like basically go professional in any sport they want you know when they work that hard and yeah. um it's it's really a testament to like the the training that they put in but vermont is such like a hot spot too for the nordic scene and i think watching a lot of people come out of that those programs um have and then have good great success in the trail running scene is just like oh yeah whoa like there's a lot of um a lot of potential that's gonna keep coming out from those things i remember what like seeing um david sinclair come wins when he won speed goat it was like where's he from oh vermont okay he must be that's a right. skier and yeah. uh i was like yeah okay so it's just you know we're we're just seeing that a lot in the sport and i think it's going to continue to be this crossover Nordic skiers get pushed, get pulled into, um, yeah, get pulled into trail running because they just go out on these five hour training runs in Vermont in the most technical terrain as well. And so they're used to that and they've got huge engines, but anyway, yeah, I would say that there's a, there's a little bit of both, right? Like there's the talent people are maybe doing other things than jumping in, um, mm. these, these, these nation nationwide recognized events. Well, let me ask you this, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there's a pretty big trend in the top end of the sport, like like Francois and Killian. They're very clearly multi-sport athletes. Like they'll run from April to October, and then the second half of the year they're skiing. Like it's it's ski time, and we're just starting to see American athletes do that. Like I, Jim Walmsley, I think is moving over to Chamonix, like now. And he's going to train on the UTMB course, but then he's going to live there for like two more years and he's going to become a multi-sport athlete, like skiing, et cetera, because he recognizes he can't do running year round with the toll on his body. And I know that the allure of the West coast used to be like, yeah, you can run 12 months of the year here because of just certain weather patterns, but maybe there are benefits to the Northeast in the sense that, um, it helps you be a more holistic athlete because yeah, you maybe can't run 12 months of the year, but maybe you don't want to do that anyways for like longevity purposes no that's a great point and i'm totally on board with that just for your mental um yeah your mental sanity to to do like one sport year round and i grew i just grew up doing a little bit of everything in school programs and i never specialized to do one sport the whole year and i can't imagine doing that so going going professional it's i can just see that path to burnout injury and just fatigue mm. when you're just doing that one sport all the time and it's a lot of pressure to put on yourself when you get no and you can't mix it up yeah. um but yeah i'd say that's a you're seeing that a lot in um 
wherever you are, I think that the ski mountaineering sport as we know it is just going to continue to pull a lot of trail runners in because it is the perfect mix. You're using the upper body. You're, you know, I, I think someone came in the shop. I don't know if it was Ryan Kempson or one of the OCR guys. And they're just talking about, maybe we're talking about Jordan and, and the philosophy behind Nordic skiing and that you're utilizing the upper body. All of a sudden you're just like your blood volume goes up or like the amount of blood you need to pump to circulate the body. Um, these become like, you just kind of level up when you, when you become good at Nordic skiing and yeah, I, I'll go to my grave saying that Nordic skiers are probably the best like aerobic athletes out there. And it's cool that, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there could be some sort of feeder system out there in Vermont, like at Craftsbury, for example, with all these world-class Nordic skiers getting a taste of summer mountain running and maybe seeing the light in ultras and wanting to dip their toes in, in some form. Yeah, it's humbling. Like they jump in like the Mount Washington road race. I know that like Noah Hoffman did it right on like with very little training, transitioning into road, got like seventh or ran like incredibly fast and then went to win um, Loon Mountain race coming off of like a 40 hour, 40 hour week of training. Like that you can do that in Nordic. That's what he did in the summertime, like whether he was like Nordic skiing, biking, like the mix and the volume he was doing. It's like you're seeing Ryan Atkins do big volume like that. Um, but they uh, the U.S. Mountain Championships are coming up and you'll see all these Nordic skiers pop in. Like I, I remember the the Ragged Mountain 50K, David Sinclair and Simi Hamilton came and crushed like mm. wasn't even a competition. Mm. Um and it's like, yeah, you're, I, I think um, we're going to continue to see that at these big events. Like, who is this person? What's their background? And you're going to get a lot of Nordic, ski, Nordic skiers pop in um, in that top 10 place. David Sinclair is a monster. He just had a phenomenal Canyons 100K. I think he declined the golden ticket, but, you know, he was right there with Adam Peterman for most of the race. And I, I only bring that up because I follow him on Strava. And a week later, he was in Truckee, California at altitude doing like a 20-mile marathon paced effort like a week removed from the race like that guy's ability to not only put in a hard effort but then to (laughs) recover like it was nothing uh i haven't seen anything like it i can't think i mean almost everybody in that race is trashed after the fact like adam peterman who he waited like two weeks he took the full amount of time before he's like okay i think i'll be ready in time for western states nine weeks from now like he was it took a toll on him and there's sinclair just like what's next yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me at all when their training efforts are five hours, like, you know, con- through historically throughout their, I don't know, post like high school, their collegiate, post collegiate career, their uh, year round, like they have like the, their long runs or long activities and they never wear GPS, you know, it's just pure heart rate. Like they won't put anything, they won't, they just have to run a certain amount of time at a certain heart rate zone and that's it. Like it's kind of crazy. Well, I think you've painted a picture that from a high performance standpoint, there's nothing wrong in the Northeast. There's a lot of cool stuff going on, probably just athletes that aren't getting the recognition they deserve. But I do want to go back to your comments on like that LL Bean scene where like all of the branding and the advertising isn't using local imagery, local settings. Given that you work in this industry, you own a running store, why do all of these marketing teams at the major trail running, schemo brands, in the sport why do they focus on the west coast and then 
over in the Alps and not in like the White Mountains of New Hampshire? Because I think that, in my opinion, plays a part in why the region gets overlooked. It's uh, it's a few things. I mean, I it's there's no denying it's easy to go out and get the shot at some like beautiful location, you know. If uh, you know, with Fisher, I, w- I remember going out there and in 2016 to do some photos and uh yeah we went to silverton got some powder shots everything it was just like cookie cutter like stock photos of someone slashing a turn dropping like a a 10-foot cliff and it was like yeah this is so easy you just come out here and do it and you get you, you get the deliverables of those classic shots and um i think here it's a little more work the payout might be a little more difficult to get what you want but you even on those bad days like you get some pretty beautiful stunning imagery um and that it's it's been really fun i mean i think you know i worked with patagonia a bunch to do some on-spec work where we just go out spray a bunch of photos and then submit them and hope they take a couple and you just never know what they're going to do with them and now we have some photos in the cambridge they opened a cambridge shop um friend brent he got a bunch he got some photos and uh, their Freeport shop and you see it, it, it popped up and, and I think Scott Jerks took a, a frame grab of a screen grab of a, like some email, some return email that was my dog and I high-fiving like in the whites. And it's super cool to see stuff like that, that, um, make their way into corporate. But, um, again, I think like headquarters being out West and it's like, it's easy can be easy to shoot there you're seeing some other companies here do a really good job because they're based here and mm. it's accessible and easy they don't have to travel um but yeah you're right it's just a matter of i think it's just a matter of getting some good imagery and letting some of these companies know in their marketing department that are probably i don't want to generalize but like I think some of the, there's this old school marketing. It's like, let's get a magazine ad. Let's do something here. I remember I'm talking to some companies and this is, I had this one conversation with this guy who's like a friend of mine, like I knew. And he's like, I don't know. He's like, I don't even know what you do. And I'm like, you know, why would I support you? Like, why would I give you money to do a video or something? And I was like, wow, I'm like you are lost. I mean, I, <laughs> I just think like, so it's funny. I have these videos that get hundreds, you know, hundreds of thousands of views and like from way back when, but it was just doing what I thought should be done. It's like yeah. these videos, those are like, we have a starving community between Boston, Portland, New York City. It's all accessible for them, this like really dense audience and user group to come access um, mountains here in, in the Northeast. And it's not just the White Mountains. You've got the Green Mountains in Vermont. You have um, obviously Baxter State Park and you've got Western Mass, um, the Fort Adirondacks. Pierce, yeah. Yeah, and Catskills, there's like mountains and places to recreate and hone your skills to go to these other places. Like you got to travel. You can't just get locked up here. This isn't the end all, but their their mountains are here. They're within a day's drive um, and they should be highlighted. Are the communities fragmented? Because when I think of Salt Lake and San Francisco and Seattle, like it's so easy to see a group run fill up. It's so easy to uh, find training partners to get through the week with if you're getting ready for a race. Could you paint that picture? Because I'm just trying to figure out where some of the missing variables might be because obviously the branding is one of them, but um, I'm curious if like what that element looks like. No, that's, that's a great point. I think as social media is like the easiest way to get information, to, to disseminate in- information is like 
social media. It says there's newsletters, there's Instagram, the Facebook groups, Instagram pages, accounts. There's just like so many more, so much more ways to get information out about community events, to form communities that that wasn't established, I think, in the not not until fairly recently in the, mm. in the past like four or five years so you're getting user groups you know that's paralleling like new user groups and uh i i when i moved back here there wasn't there wasn't like uh there wasn't like a, a running um a mountain trail running community and now there's like a few of them and that's just popped up in the past uh i'd say the past few years where there's like new events are forming and uh yeah, it's easier to see what's going on through social media with other communities. So Massachusetts has their um, trail animal. I mean, yeah, it was a trail animal running club, Tark. And yeah. then you've got the trail, the trail monsters out of Maine. And yeah. then here, you know, in, in New Hampshire, 603 started, 603 Endurance started probably, you know, 2000, I want to say 2016-ish. And forming events that were fun approachable not just honing in on you know their quote was not like one sport every sport but like really being um inclusive and making things fun and and providing the space for people to come out and meet other people because that's what it's about like it used to just be read people's blogs (laughs) their their trip reports and you learn about stuff but it was like yeah it was really fragmented and now with new events and clubs that it's it seems like more than ever easy and approachable to come out and meet people um, mm. that will ho- hopefully like be like a running partner, a ski partner, something like that. Mm. How come we don't see more elite athletes from the West Coast, male or female, adding East Coast events to their racing calendars, in your opinion? Yeah, it just... It feels like going where the money is, where the sponsorships are for like for that caliber that have like a limited window, limited limited travel budget. Like I feel like a lot of elite athletes don't get compensated well either. Mm-hmm. You know, like what's in it for them to come out to some of these events here? Unless, um, you know, I'd say Tom Hooper does a pretty good job comping people, events, entry fees, like whether he um, gives them a free place to stay and just really kind of takes that legwork out that. Uh, a elite athlete would normally get get paid to do in in their region or another big name race but yeah so it's it's sort of limited to this like usatf circuit which will get you onto a mountain running team or um sort of this national level recognition Mm. and we only we always we seem to get the 10k mountain championships and we've also since had some of the 50k trail championships and this year we've got i guess i think they added a vertical into it so that's what loon mountain race is going to be the vertical yeah. usatf and Whiteface is going to be the the mountain race which it feels backwards it feels like the mountain race should be up here in the vertical since they've got the vertical to do it yeah should be down should be down there but um yeah i it's i think it's as simple as that it's like th- if the races were supported by like prize purses and events, I mean, and, and, um, sponsorships, then, you know, athletes would be coming out here more frequently. It's just like expensive. And, um, a lot of your events out there, like you're in Salt Lake, you can drive to quite a few of them. Yeah. That just must be pretty nice. (laughs) 
Well, what's stopping like a hundred K or hundred mile UTMB style event from taking place outside of Jackson, New Hampshire, for example, or, uh, you know, Sugarloaf, Maine or Killington, Vermont, like, because, you know, my imagination runs wild when I think of all the opportunities to put something big like that in there for, you know, um, the Walmsleys of the world, the Courtney's of the world who are, uh, you know, racing events like UTMB year in, year out. Well, I, you know, we do have, let's see, we've got the Riverlands 100. That's in May. There's the Eastern States 100. Yeah. That's mid, late summer. That's there's a, uh, mm-hmm. and then there's the mid state massive 100, which is from New Hampshire to Rhode Island goes through Massachusetts and what other hundred miler there's the Vermont 100. Mm. That's all like up, up here, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm thinking of in my, in the region of like New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, but it takes, you know, what I'm realizing is it's like, it takes a lot of work to get to, to host a hundred miler. It's, um, it's like an army of volunteers. It's a lot of organizational skills that I don't think, you know, it, a lot of race directors have that time to dedicate to something of that magnitude and then to really utilize the terrain we have here it's a permitting process the land ownership whether it's local state federal mm. it's it's a lot of navigational skills and patience and and we've had this conversation before i i always thought that the there was this moratorium on um on permits granted in the white mountains because there is this course the the kismet cliff uh, half marathon event that is in the white mountains technically and i thought that, that was the only one that was it was grandfathered in that and maybe the tuckerman inferno yeah pentathlon which has a section in the white mountains as well and there wasn't really anything else going on aside from those two and then um ryan waltz and christina Folsick had gotten some approval for some white mountain races and that was a big deal. So there was this one, the Kilkenny Ridge race, which was a, tw- it's a 25 miler or a 50 miler. If you do the out and back, there's, um, Shikoro, a mountain race. There's, uh, they just got a new one, the Jigger Johnson hundred K or 50 miler. Oh, nice. And maybe, maybe I'm missing a, missing a couple more, but it really just what it came down to was some, someone or some people that were just motivated and were, you know, could have the proven track record that they could host an event safely and navigate the permitting process and then just like work with the governing bodies to make sure that they're everyone's on the same page. It's really communication. And so there's a few ingredients in there to make, make events like that happen that might be a little easier to navigate out West. I mean, Mm. I'm not, I'm, it's still difficult. Like I, I, there's still the, the pure, um, legwork that goes into it and setting up the whole orchestrating the whole event. And I see it, I do a little event directing myself and it's not, it's not at that level. It's like pretty small scale, like venues. It's not spread out over a hundred mile course. And to make a fun hundred mile course, it's not just laps, a bunch of laps, like it would either doing like a point to point or a giant loop. Um, That's a lot of terrain to cover and it's slow train terrain. So yeah. your events and your cutoff times and everything might be drawn out a little longer. You might need more aid stations. It's, uh, yeah, it, there's just a lot that goes into it. And so it takes like a, a unique individual to want to organize that. 
on top of the patience to work with the governing bodies and then also just the ability to come up with something fun that's worth having. So all the events that are popping up are, are generally just ones that don't exist mm. and that should exist. So it's, it'll be, um, it'll be interesting to see how the, the next, um, yeah, the next few years unfold. I would say that, uh, the events that we do have seem to be filling up and the, there's an audience that's ready to, to jump in and do some of these fun, fun, uh, ultra distances. Well, it's cool to know that the major bottleneck here is more an issue of like motivation and legwork than some stone wall in the regulation process because yeah, I've lived out in Salt Lake city for six years now. And it seems like every single summer is increasingly feeling more like Armageddon out here from like a weather standpoint and across the West, you never know for sure if events are going to happen from like a weather standpoint, like there could be fires on the Western States course or issues with the hard rock course or, you know, smoke, it, it could be anything. And so, um, from what I understand, you know, these East coast Northeast races have no issue selling out, but, um, there could be this great moment where, uh, if people want security in their summer racing schedule and inspiration, um, there's a place for them in new England. Well, I won't discount the weather and the, the, conditions here yeah we might not have this the well, we just had a though. couple wild, we just had a couple wildfires and um you know you want to have these fun races above tree line too to get the views and that that always has it comes at a risk and not to mention like the at is like a no that's like you can't do anything technically on the at but maybe that's another thing that just needs a couple people pushing and and trying to get something yeah to work but i don't know it's it's a challenge and um, but you just got to be creative and patient. What, if you're putting your marketing hat on for a second, what advantages do you think the Northeast has over the West? Because a lot of folks that I hang out with in, in Salt Lake, for example, they're all former East coasters from upstate New York or Western mass or Maine. And they've all headed West for their quote unquote opportunity and to satisfy their imagination and their mountain sports life. But I th yeah, I just think the region gets overlooked. So if you're trying to make a pitch for what makes New England a better place to be a mountain athlete, uh, what would it be? Well, I think at the very at the core of it, you can do a little bit of everything here. So whether that's non-technical, rolling dirt roads, we got it. If you want the technical stuff, we got it. If you want the vertical, we got it. It's like you can really pick pick apart whatever discipline you're in and make it happen here. It's like everything from, from flat road to hilly road to non-technical trail to mountain bike, you know, technical trail to just straight up a mountain. There, there is like something for everyone and, and it's, there's plenty of it. Uh, you know, I'd say like the other, the other cases that, uh, you know, there's that ability to, to be like a four season athlete to pick in, to, to switch over. And, um, you know, you can dedicate, if you really want to run in the winter time, you can, it's going to be hard, but, um, you know, you can switch it up and you can do mount, you know, get into mountain biking, yeah. ice climbing, um, skiing. There's, there's so many different sports that are all right here. The windows are, um, changing. It feels like all the time, but, uh, they're here, you know, it's like we're skiing 
people are still skiing. We're still skiing this weekend and it's June. So it's not like you, you know, at a certain month you're done. There's a opportunity to, to get out and do the sports you really like to do. Um, I would say the other things would be like, yeah, to work on like, yeah, your technical, the technical terrain. I mean, that's always a big one that people really harp on, but, uh, it's takes a lot of effort and skill to run on this terrain smoothly. You know, it's like something that to me, it's like, as I get older, it feels like more and more risky to move fast in the train. And as these trails seem to get more and more eroded more rocks showing up, more roots, uh, it's, it's slow. It's like relatively slow and, and steep, but, um, it's rewarding. Nonetheless, it's, uh, it's such a fun, fun, different difference in terrain from what you'd experience, you know, out West. And like, I, I will say like, there's te- people paint out West as being like buttery, smooth, like perfect, but everything's relative. Like you get into a routine out there, you're on this like really smooth path and then you hit a chunk like some rocks and it feels like the most technical thing you've ever hit um but here it's like yeah it's a reminder you know you go out and it's a constant reminder that yeah it's like you know you can have some really just frustrating experiences where there's blowdowns and wet rock and the footing's terrible but then you'll make those like small stretches of perfectly smooth like picturesque uh, single track, perfect and more, more appreciative. Mm. Um, so I don't know, going back to your question is like the, the pitch for like being here and everything else. What really got me excited to be here was this feeling of discovery. Like it feels like everything out West has been done. Like, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but out here, you know, out here it was like, it, it felt like nothing had been done and nothing had been shared. And that was exciting. It's like, look on a map, go point to point, like make these new routes. Like when I was felt like during this time of like, you know, FKTs are blowing up, it's like new ones are being added and all these creative routes in different regions. And that part was, was super exciting. And and a big um, draw for me was like, you don't want to be doing what everyone else is doing. You sort of want to be creative and and have a little, um, you know, ownership over the area that you're in. One other thing I'll add is, because uh, I was just in your neck of the woods a week ago, um, it's consolidated too. Like out west, you have to drive far. Like if I'm going from Salt Lake down to the desert, it's you know a four-hour drive, no question, up to the Tetons, et cetera. Like there's a lot of driving that needs to be done, and I can get from like the major metros to the Whites in like an hour. Yeah. And it's like, we were talking about this is that I was like, you're, it's crazy. You should have stayed at Joe Dodge Lodge or something. But for me to drive over to Franconia Notch, which is an hour, maybe hour and change for me to get to is like, I rarely do it anymore because I live 10 minutes from Pinkham Notch now. And it's like, it's all, it's all relative. You get, you know, people that drive up from from Southern New Hampshire, you get people that drive from Boston, people are driving up from Rhode Island and then people are driving up from New York people are driving out from Connecticut and Pennsylvania. And it's like, it's no big deal for them to do, you know, eight hours plus traffic. Mm. So it's all, yeah, everyone has their different threshold. And, and maybe this is just me, but I'll just say it again. I'm way more nervous about the near term negative effects of climate change out West than I am in New England. I just feel like we m- more viscerally feel uh, what's coming down the pipe here in places like Boulder and Salt Lake city and, San Francisco. Uh, I feel like when I go back every summer to New England, 
it's just a little bit safer. Like I feel like you see the running water, you see the, the green around you. Um, not everything's all burned and uh, desiccate. It's just, I don't know. I feel like it's like yeah, a little bit of a safe haven. That may be true, but the bugs, man, <laughs> our, bug pro- our bug problem is not getting any better. I mean, I feel like every, every May I'm like, how can it get worse than this? Like yeah. we have no CMs, mosquitoes. Um, ticks black flies ticks and then like deer flies are coming out and then these caterpillar problems like right now we have all these i don't know gypsy moth or webworm whatever the the caterpillar is it's like eating everything in sight and you can hear it you can hear like little things falling from the sky and like caterpillars are getting into your hair and (laughs) in your face and then it they defoliate all the trees they did last summer so it feels like it's crazy these areas these hiking trails that it feels like spring because all this light's getting through that never used to get through and then there's like a second spring when everything leaves out again mm. in midsummer but it's bizarre mm. um, so yeah i would say bugs is aside from antelope island i mean it's pretty nice out there it, it, it it's true that and um oh gosh i'm overlooking the mountain range to our east uh east of park city there the uintas the uintas have a bug problem as well but yeah the wasatch is is kind of bug free and that is definitely a competitive advantage for us. A um, <laughs> couple more questions I have for you on the scene in the whites, uh, just to paint a further picture. If, if someone's passing through for the day or two, like a weekend, what trail or mountain do they have to hike or run before they depart and why? Gosh, I, th- I think the easiest the easiest low hanging fruit is going to be something out of Pinkham notch just because it is like so quick to get above tree line, mm. whether you do something like Glen Boulder or just get up to the base of one of the ravines, Tuckerman ravine, Huntington ravine, get up to lion's head. Mm. There's uh that part is just like beautiful to me. It's, it's sort of what, why the whites are so special, um, are the, the presidentials. But, uh, if I go into like kind of, some of the lesser known spots evans notch is like a quieter nicer like a quieter younger version of of pinkham notch and uh it's such a that's such a beautiful spot that uh you'll if you want to get away from people like weekends are nuts everywhere it feels like right now but um yeah you have to you have to get up on mount washington just to see it because it is kind of a circus but it's also extremely beautiful and there's a ton of different trails whether you're coming up from the west side the east side or link a big loop it's uh that's like a must and then you know the other places that get hammered would be franconia ridge uh it's because it's like getting above tree line and ridge line it's it's beautiful you don't have a ton of it there's not a ton of it in new england so the little bits that we do get it's like that's where you want to be yeah so any any anywhere you get above tree line in the white mountains is uh you can just pull open the map it will show you where above tree line is and and uh, as long as the weather's, you know, you get a good view, it's, you can be anywhere and be happy. We talked about the Deeratissima earlier. Um, at this present moment, which FKT route in the Northeast intrigues you the most? Uh, well, the White Mountain 100, because it's like the new... Yeah, talk about that. The new... Fre- yeah, I, I, I think, um, so after Scott Jerk went through the White Mountains and it was like, I accumulated, I looked on Strava to calculate what I had just done. And I was like, oh, wow, that's like 100 miles door to door from, you know, Musalak to Route 2. And I thought that was like 
oh, that would be nice to like put in an effort I don't, like again no idea what like a good time would be to do it but like to do it in a ultra fashion and it has it's set up to be like a perfect ultra it's point to point you have all these aid resupply spots if you wanted to do it that way and it's again kind of the unknown like no one's done it no one's done it like the fastest time on it right now is probably like Carl like Carl Save right like he flew through the whites and I forget what time maybe he did in 35 hours or with sleeping or something I don't know but um, Christina Fulsick ended up doing it from north to south and you know before she did it i i gave it an attempt and did it unsupported uh carrying all my own food and water yeah. with no crew and uh i picked like the hottest day of the year um two summers ago to try it was it two summers ago yeah to try it and it was like it was awesome the first part of it was was great but it was just so hot and i just could never catch up like just pushed it a little too hard and ultimately had to tap out 80 miles in with um there's no way i was going to get it done in the time and fashion i wanted to get it done i could have finished it but it was like my cardio was shot so that that's like uh you know there's there's something aesthetic about 100 miles and the stats on it like 34,000 vertical feet or so um and it just happens to cover the whole section of appalachian trail through the white mountains so it's like the perfect uh bookends right there and so that's that as far as an fkt goes it's like then it's it's sort of in this ultra world of like okay this is like how does this stack up compared to other other um fkts in that realm or other ultras in that realm yeah and like you're saying it's there's not uh, there's nothing else like it as far as um a hundred miler in uh on the north in the northeast that could stack up against you know it's like world class i think as far as the specs go on it and it might be nice just to have it as being an fkt or like an underground ultra where i've thrown out the idea of having um just supply like having parking vehicles at the different notches and just telling people all right like here we go like this is we're going to start it now and like you're sort of on your own but if you want it like you can do it and here are these aid stations going to be set up for like the next 48 hours mm. um I think it'd be so cool. But so that, I think that's definitely with Jack, with that coming up and Jack, you know, shedding a little more light on it yeah. and see what he does. And if he can finish it, you know, like that's, if he can finish it, like the, when someone's going as hard as he's going to probably go, like anything can happen. Um, but the, yeah, the other stuff that's really neat is like the supported 48, 4,000 footer um, route, which Steph Bishop did last year. She, she um, had a torrential downpour in the middle of her effort which really slowed her down but um i know i think i heard through the grapevine will peterson might be giving it a go but andrew thompson has that record from i don't know way back when mm. and so no one's really touched stuff like i think like records that have held held up a long time it's like well they must be pretty difficult or else someone else would be hammering it but i think we'll get more people doing some of these um some of these bigger efforts now that the I think the pool is getting deeper. I want to ask you one more question about the White Mountains 100. Do you think that that route at some point in time should be considered a, a marquee FKT route in the Northeast? Because I think if I go to the FKT website, they list the Long Trail and I think it's the Presidential Traverse as the two routes in the Northeast for that get like extra weight 
So do you think that that has an opportunity to be right up there with those two? I think it will. I think what it needs to have a time associated with it. And then it'll be, I think it will be a premiere thing at some point. Uh, you know how the hut traverse is a 24 hour thing yeah. where people try to, you know, they'll start at midnight and try to get done by midnight. And I think you could do something similar and be like 48 hours <laughs> to get this done. Um, with like, you know, a similar like the concept be the same. Um, I, I think it will be because what it does is it highlights like a lot of the mountain ranges and the, you know, people are so gravitate, uh, gravitate towards in the white mountains because they're above tree line. Like we were talking about, uh, yeah, no, I, but very like no one's tried it. So it's, uh, I think getting the word out, maybe we'll see some more attempts because it just takes a weekend, right? Like, what are you doing this weekend? Well, let's, um, go, go find, uh, find out how far we can go on the AT through the whites. And I think Jack is another good guy to give it a shot. I have a couple of friends in the schemo scene out here and I don't know if this is hyperbole, but they are declaring him the best American mountain athlete that no one knows about yet. So maybe he goes out there and, uh, does something special goes under 24 hours. Is it next weekend? He's doing it. Yeah. He's just looking at the weather right now. So yeah. it's, um, I think everyone's sort of on call at the moment yeah stuff is showing up at our shop as we speak like all, all his nutrition and packs and shoes <laughs> cool uh last question uh on this front favorite northeast trail race so if i'm somebody from the west coast that's headed your way between the months of let's say june and september what do you recommend someone signing up for it could be any distance 50k you know mm -hmm. sub ultra 100 mile whatever Gosh, I mean, I think like it's so easy to just associate these races with like certain points in like your career and like your um, the community and like things that like have a good energy to them. But I really have enjoyed. I like I look at races that I've done a lot, and I did. I think I've done the the ragged fifty k a few times, and I think that that's what's nice about that is it's really approachable from a few different levels where it's not super technical terrain. It has a good flow to it. A lot of it's like dirt road at the beginning but it still has a big climb at the finish and you can do it as part of a, a 75 mile stage race too so if you're into that mm. um it's it can scale so you do you know 20 miles and then 25 miles and you end with like the 35 miles something like that but uh i would say that that's just been like a really fun event that 603 took over it used to be um i think called the emerald necklace and i don't know it's just a race that it's in August. It's the, the timing's good. It's fun. It's probably usually hot. So check it out. Cool. I do want to, uh, make sure we talk about the store before we close up. And is it called, is it ski the whites? Yeah. Ski the whites is the umbrella and then run the run. The whites is the running section of it. And then ride the whites is the, the mountain bike or bike e-bike gravel bike section of it and we have, we have a coffee section coffee category too now which is the ski the whites coffee co cool and did this was this all created post uh post uh time with scott jerk was this another one of those ideas that came about just feeling motivated from that experience yeah that was right after i think i think i backlogged some blog web like i made um just like a, a I made a blog to document, you know, 
this is the PEMI loop. This was this. This is like sort of like my little training journal, but turned into here's some videos and um, trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with that? I need um, ski the whites because that's what, you know, I think that's, I still consider myself a skier first. I might, I might do a little, but even though like I'd probably do more running in my life, I'm, I for sure do more running in my life, but skiing was where I felt like I could really you know, plant my flag here in, in the white mountains. So ski the whites, how do I get more traffic to my website? Well, ski the whites, there was hike the whites at the time. And I was like, yeah, let's do skiing. And so it st- what started as like a, a blog quickly. Like I was like, I, I need to start a business because, um, I need a job. So no one was really renting backcountry gear or doing what I thought a great job or carrying the gear that I wanted or that I was using. Mm-hmm that was specialized, um, in this, this category. So I opened, um, an account with Fisher skis. They gave me an account. My friend worked for them. They're, they're out of Auburn, New Hampshire, which is just a couple hours away. And I was like, all right, I got a dealer account. And I, so I was like, you know, went through the whole application process. And, and so having that account, let me sort of help get other accounts. But, um, my blog just turned into my business. I was like, well, I'm, too lazy to change my name. I'll just keep ski the whites and go from there. Wow. So there's a lot of questions I have here, but the first is obviously you're a passionate athlete, but you're also a business owner. How do you balance the demands of running the store on a day-to-day basis and still fulfilling that I'm assuming original mission of just being in the mountains, recreating as often as possible. That's like, a really difficult proposition there is like, you know, you get into this because you love the outdoors and spending, like I, I spent so much time, um, hiking and, and running and skiing. And that's, that's why I got like pointed into like pulled into Scott Jurek's world was because I was the guy mm. and you gain reputation from just like day in, day out being consistent and doing what you love, you know, doing what you do. And so I was just became known as the guy that's like running around in the white mountains because I was doing that and I was sharing it and you gain a reputation. And like, I just, I really wanted to honestly become an expert in the terrain out here and, and the lay of the land. And so by doing that, like I, I um had like a little bit of a following or just like, you know, some trust in the community that, okay, Andrew knows what he's talking about. He's out there testing this, using this gear. And, um, everyone talks about the East coast as having like really technical terrain and a little different use case in gear as you would out with an area with higher annual snowfall, like Colorado, like Utah, like California. And so our tool sets are a little bit different and a little more specialized. So, I, I took that experience, you know, and that reputation and, and sort of parlayed it into the shop and the shop started as these accounts out of my place where I was living in this farmhouse and my truck. And I would just let friends use the gear I bought with some demo bindings and just sort of introduce them and let them know that I have this gear that it's available. And like, I just turned my website into a e-commerce shop. And so everything I brought in, I would list online. And so I was sort of searchable. Um, and it just was so slow that first year, but I felt like I was on the track. I yeah. was on the, I was on the path of doing something right. But that first year 
when things were so slow, you spend so much more energy into like marketing and building your brand identity somehow. And, and that was just going out and skiing all the time. I remember there was, so 2016, 17 was my first winter with an account. And in February, I spent three weeks straight just skiing in the stretch of like incredible, incredible um, conditions that you could go anywhere, just any riverbed, any peak, go ski it. Uh, and then the that summer, a place opened up at Black Mountain Ski Area, and that, that sort of changed everything. So now I have a brick and mortar space, but it's at a ski resort that's only open three months out of the winter. So it still wasn't much work, but it like really gave me mm. leverage to to continue down this path because easily I could have just been like well I had 10 sales and didn't make any money and but I had a really fun time and um, getting that space at Black Mountain wasn't sure what I was going to do with it uh, this ski patroller Dave Abel let me know about it I thought maybe it'd be a gear drop because you know if people are trying to get up to Pinkham Notch guides are taking clients out maybe I could just set them up with gear but it really was the opposite it was like the general public could now see what modern backcountry gear looked like. They could try it out in a safe environment at a groomed ski resort. And then I could also host events there to like, again, build community. And it was just like this perfect storm of right place, right time, right category. It's a growing category. A nonprofit just got help start a nonprofit at the same time like called Granite Backcountry Alliance. So here's a user group that's building out skiable terrain in New Hampshire and Western Maine and resurrecting some of these old ski trails. Uh, and that was like a feeder system. Cause now you have like these skiers and that need gear. And now I've got the gear and, uh, it just went hand in hand. And so with events that next year, it just kept like incrementally growing, but still tiny, mm. like really tiny operation, just me. And then I got help, um, from uh, one of my first participants in my ski series, Friday Night Lights, so a nighttime ski touring series. I introduced this this guy, gentleman, Monty McIndoe, into backcountry skiing gear. And like next thing you know, he's like my right-hand man and um, my co-event director, which is crazy. So he was like 54 at the time, I think. And yeah, it, it just like kind of continued to grow incrementally and uh, since and like here we are now in a retail location that mm. was like I had this moment where I was in my old shop and it's a converted nursery so it's this little like 10 by 10 room and I used to you know I started spilling out of it to the point where like people are in the locker room so they gave me they kicked the employee they they converted the employee lounge into my space so I feel really bad but everyone got kicked out and it afforded me like more storage and more area to just um really keep gear I, I up front in my old room and the old space was like where I rented out most of the gear but uh it was that those like first steps um where I had this moment where I was like is this what I'm doing with the rest of my life working out of this little nursery and just knowing that I was missing out on um, opportunity for the the bigger picture of the the calendar year mm. where Black Mountain's not open there's like no one coming through that space yeah. it's dead and uh so I was like, I need to make a move. And that's when I got into the space I'm in now, which is like a really funky old um, gallery studio space cool building. Spot. And I just, I ended up just buying the whole building and renting out the, renting out part of it to a ski and bike mechanic and a carpenter that came along for the ride that 
they knew when I was getting the space, they want, they needed space to rent. And yeah. So since then, it's just like really shifting gears and adopting the, the retail life. But, uh, yeah, that's where I'm at now. Well, backtracking just a little bit, there are a fair number of folks who listen to this show that are interested in entrepreneurship and channeling that towards our world of running and skiing and biking. I think I'm curious and they're curious what a minimum viable mountain sports retail store looks like. And in your case, it sounds like it was a basement, a website and favorable dealer relationships. Is that a path that you recommend when you want to like test or get proof of concept before you start to scale? Man, I don't know what the right path is. You know, I didn't have anyone, any real mentors and, um, anyone really showing me the right way to do it. It just like, it seems like this works. I think, um, I was lucky to have Hillary support me throughout all this. Like she, uh, paid the bills, like paid for rent, got groceries and the whole time I'm just out playing like, <laughs> in her eyes. It's like, and I really was, I mean, I was out there in the mountains doing lots of fun stuff. And, um, you know, I think she had a really hard time with that because it's like hard not to be jealous if your partner's out doing all this awesome stuff. But in my mind, it just felt right. Yeah. It felt like what I should be doing. And if it, if it, if thing, if my back was really against the wall, I would have taken another job. I would have figured it out. I feel confident enough. Like I'm, I have a college education and I have a, a skill set where I think I could do, I could figure it out. But if I didn't give this a chance, like what would I, you know, who knows what opportunities I'd miss or, you know, the regrets about it. But I think, um, yeah, in this day and age, like you don't need much, but you need to be persistent and um, follow like your gut to some degree and, and get help when you need it. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It took me a little while to get like, comfortable passing a lot passing off tasks and like trying not to be the bottleneck and to be efficient and be like okay you've got this under control do it i mean monty who came into my life was the gosh he was the retail controller at j crew which is a huge position and then he became the cfo at supreme before he came here to to go put skins on skis and empty my trash insane yeah and it's like he just showed me that like having a little bit of work ethic showing up, um, being of service, like goes so far in life. And like, he's someone that you'd, anyone would want in their corner. Mm. Um, so it's like learning little, little skill sets along the way, which might not seem as obvious. Yeah. I mean, to, to just the getting, getting the machine oiled so that like you can do other stuff with your time. But, um, yeah, you really don't need much. Well, you said a moment ago that, you know, there was this early stage of the business where you were quote unquote going out and playing in the mountains, but I'm curious, was there, were there any unintended business benefits to getting all of that content documented on YouTube? Like did any of the awareness you were getting with your YouTube channel funnel back to the business in any way, like building this sort of media arm? Yeah, it's a little frustrating because I wish I did. It makes you just wish you did a better job of it or stick with it a little further because I did get like enough traction, like, you know, regional traction where people know me from those videos, because like, if you want to see what this ski run looks like, chances are some crappy POV video I put up might, might be on the internet, but like, there's some really beautiful stuff and stuff I'm proud of. I'm like, man, I used to hustle. And I like, I put in a lot of work to be up in certain hours and certain conditions and doc and pull the camera out. And it was like, yeah, I, 
I paid my dues. I went out there and it's really fun when people come in, they're like, I started backcountry skiing cause of your videos or something, you know, I've, I've been out there and, and run into people and they'll recognize me from yeah. it. And I think that's cool. And it's, it's, it's fun. I think it's like one of these like little ego things, but you know, I'm in a growing category. Like I'm not blind to that. It's like the majority of my business is people that just want to get into the sport. And we're like the store that has the stuff. And, um, I think all like my coworkers and everyone's done a great job and, and making it friendly so that if someone has a good experience here, they're going to tell their friend and they're going to come in. Um, but having, it certainly doesn't hurt to have like good photos and videos out there too, to just sort of back up what you're talking about. Mm. Like this guy must know something if he's out there scrambling up that and skiing this. And I don't know. It's like, I, I look, I try to envision how I look at people's credibility and stuff. And I think that often you can walk into a big box store and be like, this guy has no, how do I know what this guy, if he's just rattling off what the sales guy for the brand yeah. said, or if he's like really out there using it. Um, and I find that, you know, that, that line's erased here in the shop because like we, we all do it all. Mm. A couple more questions here. Do you think, given the experience you've had to date, it's possible to be a pure run specialty store, ski specialty store, or do you need to uh, pair that retail component with like selling coffee and hosting events and uh, creating content and just finding excuses to bring people to the store? Hmm. I think it depends where you live. You know, I'm I'm up here in a remote, like fairly remote, like tourist town where I don't necessarily have the foot traffic to support just being one thing. Um, if you're in Boston, like if we had a shop in Boston, we would not have to work in the summertime. Like we would just be flat out so busy, but you'd have to live in Boston. Um, so up here you have definitely have to hustle a little more. You know, when I moved into this space, I was, I had no, um, we didn't have any bike accounts or, or any intention of doing bikes. It just happened that my, um, my friend Jake, who was helping me out right as COVID hit came along for the ride. He needed a job and pretty much just created one for himself by like being on the bike guy. Let's do bike stuff. And I took me a little while to get my head around it. Cause I didn't want to become the cliche ski and bike shop. There's plenty of those around, but there's a reason why you know, they're, they're floating them through the summer and bikes are, you know, a lot more, there's a lot more crossover with skiing and biking than skiing and running. And at that point I was into running. I didn't really have, um, and I didn't even have an, like my shoe account set up yet. And it's like, how can you be a specialty shoe store, like a trail running store and not even have a shoe account. And what I saw was an opportunity to mod to like copy the model of backcountry rental skis with e-bikes, which, you know, it's sort of working. It's not nearly, you know, as exciting or successful as the ski thing, but it's something, it's something to bring new customers in the shop. And it is a little bit of a hustle. You know, I feel like I have to market that a lot more, but you know, doing mountain bikes and gravel bikes and, the coffee and events. It's just like a continual way to grow your customer base. And that's all it is. You want to grow your family that will support you. And that's what in hindsight I've been doing through social media, through 
events and then through retail sales. And it's like, you're creating this giant family that you feel like, you know, everyone, you have this shared common love for these, these different sports for these, this region. And as a result, it affords you the opportunity to like, take it in whatever direction you want. Any, uh, other lessons or advice you've picked up over the years that you think members of the audience that want to follow a similar path would, would appreciate to hear. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a hustle. Like it doesn't feel like it at the time. And I just had these moments of reflection when like you ask questions like that, like it gets you thinking about how did you end up here? And it's like, man, I, I really like the story of like going to UTMB, like that first year when, um, Doug Mayer, who has a company run the Alps out based out of Chamonix. He is from Randolph, New Hampshire, just up the road or has a place up there. And he just hit me up one day and was like, why don't you come out to UTMB? And I was like, do what? Like, why, what do I, what do you mean? Like, I, of course, like I want to go to UTMB, but like, I didn't feel like I had a, I didn't, I couldn't race it. I didn't have, it was never on my radar because it just felt like so, um, next level. And he's like, yeah, I just go work for like, you know, you do videos and stuff, like just go with trail runner magazine or something. And so I was like, okay. So this is like 2016 in the spring, maybe May of 2016. So it was really pretty felt late May or June. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'll just get media credentials and go out to UTMB. I'll buy a ticket. I'll figure it all out. But like, it was so cool where I reached out to trail runner and they're like, yeah, sure. You can be our media guy. And I don't even know if they, like, I, I probably just pitched it to UTMB, their press people first, but like that, I just went there, they put me up, gave me accommodations for like at least half the trip and I paid for everything. And I went out and just burnt myself to the ground. It was like the coolest experience. You know, I'm sure like mostly trail runners probably listen to this podcast, but like you're in the, you're in the event and, um, there's nothing as powerful as being out at UTMB, like during UTMB week. And so to to maximize my time there, I did everything. Like they give you a media schedule and they're like, do you want to, do you want to follow TDS? Sure. Do you want to race an event? I was like, sure. I can, I did the Vermont 50 last year. I can qualify for OCC. So I'm going to go do OCC. Yeah. And then like, I'm going to get no sleep. I'm going to stay up until 2am editing videos. And then I'm going to get up at like 4am to get on a bus, um, to go follow events or race and you know, by the end of it, I was so worked like that I ended up getting shingles and like, I came home from that and I was like, Whoa, I just like, what did, what just (laughs) happened? And you know, the coolest part about that was like the, the, like the lesson learned is like, just make shit happen. It's like, sometimes you might have to fake it to get in there. There's like the chicken or the egg. It's like, if you don't have this beautiful portfolio, like you got to start somewhere and do it. And whether you get like someone to support you to do it or not, it's like, do you care about it enough? Then yeah, go do it. You don't need some brand to back you up, but also don't be afraid to ask. Um, and then like, yeah, I look back on that experience and it like paid for itself, like enough YouTube revenue from some of those trips, like paid for the trip itself, which is like, I never can't expect that to happen, but it's like a lesson in like the hard work, and the experience I gained, gained on that, like I went back there the next four years. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. Like that, that those experiences, like I almost got arrested for flying a drone, like during the start, like I got this amazing footage, but like, yeah, drones weren't huge back then. 
and uh yeah the police like they let me go they confiscated my press passes the the press people were so pissed they're like oh like you're holding us up and like they're trying to go to the next stop and um I had this really cool driver though that gave me his press credentials for the rest of the time. So I was fine. Like I was able to keep going, but yeah, I don't know. There's like, I think, um, nothing, it's rare that anything's going to happen overnight, but it's like this constant repetition and like so many metaphors for like run training, go into business life. But it's like, yeah, you just got to keep showing up and, uh, eventually you'll hit a point where things are working or they're not. Well, I'm sure you're experiencing it too. You're like, you know, you put stuff out there and if you get positive feedback, you keep going and whatever that feedback is, but like, you know, whether that's you like it, um, listeners like it, your, um, sponsors show up and like it, whatever it is, but it's like, it's a feedback loop. And if you're getting positive feedback, you definitely stick with it. Also the long tail effect of it too. Like the serendipitous stuff you never could have predicted like what comes to mind for me is you know i did ccc last year and one of the biggest reasons why i did it is uh the youtube algorithm served me the video the course preview video that you and hillary did maybe in 2018 or 2019 and that was like the final kick in the pants that i needed to go and sign up for it so it's amazing how you can put something out in the world you know, at a moment in time and it just lives there forever and you never know who's going to come across it, what they're going to do with it. And then how in some way it, it funnels back to whatever you're doing. Like, I mean, I stopped at the store last week during my trip to the whites and you know, I didn't spend that much money, but like there was a little bit of business and now we're doing this podcast. And honestly, it probably started with that YouTube video. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. You never know. I, I think that's a perfect way to put it. I, um, I think I really wanted this adventure storyteller life that maybe I'm just not cut out for, or I didn't like give it my all, but it got certainly like helped. I'm glad I did it. Like, I'm glad I love media. I love taking photos. Um, I do. I like doing all this stuff. It's hard to balance it all. Like when you're doing the business, like just running a shop and you're just taking out the trash and vacuuming and doing shipping orders. It's like eventually I'll have people hopefully in place that can do help me do that stuff. I mean, I'd still get fulfillment out of the, the day-to-day things, but it, it's the other stuff that I really like and I want to get back to, but I'm, it's like, you got to pay your dues. Yeah. Like you want to build something up. Um, you got to put your time in and you can't afford to just like hire an army of people to do it for you. And also it's fun. It's fun to do it. It's fun to be on the front lines. Uh, and yeah, eventually like hopefully I can circle back and be part of more creative projects couple miscellaneous questions here before we close up the first you mentioned that you were a pretty passionate surfer at one point in life and i'm curious because surfing has a really powerful culture like i actually i'm looking at um my coffee table and i have surfers journal on it which i think is one of the best pieces of content in any sport bar none and i'm not even a surfer are there any aspects of surf culture that you really enjoyed that you miss because for whatever reason it's not something you can recreate in like the trail running scene or the ski scene or the bike scene. Mm. Man, surfing's challenging. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot like powder skiing. It's better with less people, <laughs> you know, it's like selfishly you want to get a wave and like you can share conditions that are skied up with anyone. That's fun. But like if it's powder and you want first tracks, 
Um, it's like a wave. It's like you can't only have, you can only have one person on a wave. Uh, and it makes it really challenging to want like a ton of people out there to participate with you. I, I think that that, that world, a few things, one is like, there's no better sport than surfing. I just like, I love skiing. Like, don't get me wrong, but like, there's something so powerful, so magical about harnessing the ocean, harnessing an ocean wave for momentum and, um, what you can do with that. And it takes you to some really beautiful places. But sometimes I wonder in hindsight, if like I squandered all this time hunting waves when like, that was the thing I could have moved back to, I could have moved anywhere. Right. Like I could have moved to Portland, Maine and, and like really tried to surf. But the problem is surf goes flat. You have all this downtime, even in like these world-class spots, there's like, it's not good all the time. It's like these short windows and, uh, the mountains are always open. That's like my, my saying is like the mountains are always open. Like you can go out and no matter what condition, what the weather, it doesn't matter what the weather's doing. You can get out and do something where surfing. It's like, yeah, you can go stand up paddleboard or like do something. I used to come back and paddle around the lakes just to keep my arm strength <laughs> up, which was like so pitiful. Uh, but yeah, the culture is weird. I don't know. It's kind of why I moved out of California. It was like, didn't have roots there. I didn't feel like the relationships were as deep. Um, surf culture is pretty, I don't know. It's difficult. I'd say mm. it's like, it's cool. I, I definitely admire a lot of it. Um, there's a lot of surf icons and I followed the world tour. Like I went to pipe pipe masters in 2006 and weasel my way, some credentials <laughs> there. But, uh, yeah, I'm at the Volcom house, like watching like the, the pipe finals. Um, you can't beat that. Like, it's so cool. And I think what surfing did was pretty interesting watching the, the ASP world tour, which is now the WSL, professionalize the sport and i know you talk a lot about professionals yeah. running well take a look at what they've done and they they have built they have an audience they've they're global they've done like whether you like it or not it's they've done an incredible job marketing and getting finances and making one tour as like this is it so i would say that if there's something to like glean off of what they've done it's like look at what they've done with professionalizing their sport and doing it in the recent years like that that happened pretty recently like when they like restructured and organized the sport that's super cool we'll link to that in the show notes as well and yeah you got me to a t that's one of my my passion projects via this show um next question is there anything that you used to strongly believe in your past it could be athletic related philosophically etc that you've recently changed your mind about and if so uh what prompted the change ah i don't know that there's one training method (laughs) Like everyone, you think you have it figured out. And cause I think we all just try to get the best out of ourselves. Um, we're all runners or skiers, you know, we want to be fit, be the fast as we can be. And we've just, you know, you read like one training plan and you're like, this is how you do it. This is the secret. This is going to get you there. And then you like, you hear someone else. Like I listened to the, your interval interview with Jeff Colt, who's like, yeah, I just, I have a stand up desk and I, um, I'm just on my feet mm-hmm. a lot and you know, I do a bunch of other sports and you're like, well, you know, it gets you thinking and, and he has success, but there's, there's a lot behind that. I feel like not everyone is upfront about like their gifted talent and their baseline they're working with and their age and all this other stuff. Like I'm 41 now and feeling like trying to see what I can get. How fast can I get? Can I touch, like, can I get back to where I was? 
five years ago or is this kind of like it but uh yeah there's no one way to do things i just think like everyone's going to have a different style of training different motivations different health issues um but the consistency and like just showing up every day is going to be like the common denominator that's it like there's no tricks it's hard work and like if you want to get better at something it's just like be consistent keep at it like i forget sometimes i'll have to look back in my logs to see why was i fast here what did i do here it's like oh yeah you've been training for like um 20 weeks whether you realized it or not like you were out doing stuff Mm. all the time Mm. so yeah what's a recent book movie podcast that you've consumed that uh has left you feeling inspired that the audience might want to consume as well yeah you got it you got to um see sanctity of space i get so motivated watching like mountaineering films and um sanctity of space so i grew up um not grew up but like the past when i lived in madison for five years down the road um was freddie wilkinson and he went to college with my brother and he's just like a you know badass mountaineer and so him and renan and another guy were in alaska climbing the moose's tooth um which is super cool to see this all kind of like come full circle but i was out there when they were climbing and uh in there in with him and renan and talkeetna at um god what's that dive bar whatever the bar is there we were in town and they had just like they were filming some stuff and that was in 2000 uh when was that 2012 maybe 2011 2012 they're filming just because like they're like oh maybe we can get some b-roll we can create like a film or something but that was 2012 it's 2000 it's 10 years later and they just released this movie it was like this passion project where they've i don't know weaseled some funding some grants they got like a phantom camera on a airplane and like got some crazy footage but those guys hustled and like they put together this awesome film that's like played in theaters and it's on demand now. And it's like, that's so badass. Awesome. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. Last question. If you could put a message on a billboard for all to see, what would it say and why? Uh, yeah, it would be like two sided. So you can see it from each way. And one would be like, be kind. I think that's a nice mantra to have. We use that in, in skiing, ski mm. kind. It's like, you know, it's easy to be closed off and um, be territorial about wherever you are and stuff. But like, man, it makes a huge difference to be nice to someone. If they're having trouble with their gear, they don't know where they are, the questions, um, you just never know who you're going to meet. Um, and then the other side, just be like, don't be a dick. So it'd be two-sided. Um, same message really is like being, be um, welcoming to the support the sports you're into because uh you never know who you're going to meet and and it makes a huge difference well i've really enjoyed this conversation and i want to personally thank you for uh carrying the banner for the white mountains and the northeast mountain sports scene to some extent what you've built there in jackson new hampshire you know when i think of people in the sport that i appreciate it's folks like you that are really putting a lot of effort into it devoting a lot of your life's work to it so uh, thanks for all of that. And obviously the next time up in the area, I'll stop by again. Your, your store is a cool spot. We'll link to it as well in the show notes. Anything else you want to leave the audience with before we go? Nah, that's it. Thanks so much, uh, Finn, for all you do. We, uh, we're starving for content. So 
you know, I wish I could put out more, but it's, it's great to have, uh, have these episodes to listen to and it's fun to see the mix and get a little bit of inspiration. So thank you for the work you're doing. Cool. We'll do it again soon. And, uh, until next time. Thanks. Deviating from the normal outro here to give further update on the podcast. I apologize for the completely unintended three-week hiatus. I got a little too comfortable publishing episodes in the moment, and lo and behold, ran into a few last-minute guest cancellations as well as technical difficulties that created the gap. Rest assured, I am more stoked than ever, and we have a lot of content coming your way for June. We will be doing somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 pre-Western States interviews with some of the top male and female contenders. We have an interview dropping later this week with standout trail and OCR athlete Ryan Atkins. Brett Hornig and I will be back to do an in-depth preview episode for Western States in addition to all those athlete interviews. And yeah, there's just way more coming. Seriously, the fire is burning here at Single Track. We are as excited as ever. And this is the season, right? Summer is here. We can't wait to share it with you. Um, I'll reiterate that message about Patreon that I mentioned in the intro before we go. If you've gotten any value from this show, please consider making a monthly donation at patreon.com backslash run single track. And if you can't do that, seriously, no worries. Uh, consider leaving a review in your podcast player instead and or sharing the show on Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you do your social media. It helps a ton. Until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson. You have been listening to the Single Track Podcast.